0: Welcome to Dial It In, a podcast where we talk with interesting people about the process improvements and tricks they use to grow their businesses. I'm Dave Meyer, president of BusyWeb, and every week, Trigvi Olsen and I are bringing you interviews on how the best in their fields are dialing it in for their organizations. All right. Hey, everybody. Dave is not with me today, so I'm by myself with our guests. So, unfortunately, I won't have a lot of Funny back and forth and repartee to introduce our guest, but uh, I'm really excited about the guests we have today. Years ago, I was asked by a local company where we live to judge an entrepreneurial contest where a whole lot of different people would come in and they would tell you about their ideas and tell you about whether or not and, and pitch whether how, how they would affect the world and it was an interesting experience i got to meet a lot of really interesting people and some of them had really good ideas and i think i i helped a fair amount of them through that to kind of realize that having a great idea is fine but you also have to sell it and they didn't really have a good idea on how to sell it and but they all had packages and shiny things and charts and this kind of thing and Kind of towards the end of the day, I I I was shuffled around to a different table, and I sat down with this nice uh, nice middle aged lady who really didn't have anything, and just to uh, sort of paint a picture, if you can think of like a a nice affable soccer mom type, and I, I I I think I even asked her like, well, hey, who are you here with? And she's like, no, no, it's it's just me. And I, oh, okay, great. She had no materials or anything like that, and I said, well, you know, tell me about it. And then after that, my mind sort of was blown because what happened was that she pulled out a hockey puck that she had made herself that was malleable. And at the time, what she w- she had done was thinking that she was going to revolutionize the hockey industry by making a concussion-safe hockey puck. so <laughs> And it was one of those life-changing experiences for me because I met somebody who was demonstrably smarter than I am in a completely different way than I'm smart. And uh, created, I think, one of those game-changing products that will change the world. So my guest today is Dr. Cora Liebig. She is the founder and president and CEO and generally the head of a company called Chromatic 3D Materials. Cora is has more than 20 years of experience in product development and the commercialization of chemicals and plastics. So we're probably going to make some graduate jokes. She's working with Alchemicals, Cegis, and she holds degrees from MIT and is an inventor on more than 25 patents. Is that true, 25
1: patents? Yeah, uh, it got to the point where I don't really even count them anymore. But yeah, 25.
0: So it's like, Thanks, it, like it, it, it's like Meryl Streep with the Oscars. It's just you throw
1: it on the pile. That's right. Exactly. Well, well exactly. welcome,
0: Cora. I, I, uh, I'm privileged to call you a friend, and I, I want to talk a, a lot about your business and how you started and where you've got. So back, back to where we were at the table, why don't you tell the listeners what you told me then about what did, what did you invent and what does it do?
1: sure absolutely well first of all thank you for the invitation to to speak with you on your on your podcast this is this is great and i'm looking forward to it looking forward to the discussion Um, so what what we've done at chromatic is that we've basically been looking at materials that are used all over the place in industrial products and figured out how to print them and you know A lot of people look at 3D printing and say, wow, it's a cool technology It's going to take over the world. One of the problems with 3D printing becoming a major mode of manufacturing is that the materials aren't strong enough because they're kind of making, um, in many cases, I'll call them stand-ins or fakers from a material perspective. And so what we're doing at Chromatic is taking materials... That are very commonplace in industrial systems and we work on the chemistry to make them also printable and so we've managed to to acquire a number of customers who have very particular materials that are important for their applications and they're like we know we need 3d printing how do we um, and and their reasons for using 3d printing are a variety of reasons we can get into those later but they want to be able to make them printable, and that's that's what we do. So some of the first products we have in the market are a class of materials called elastomers, and without getting very technical, all that means is that they're materials. You know, you, you think of them often as a rubber material, a soft material, where if you pull it, it comes back. And uh, that's that's really how we're making our mark in in the three D printing world because most elastomers in three D printing, other than ours, if you pull them, they don't come back, or they they have a very limited number of times that they can that they well, can move. Before, yeah. before
0: we get too deep into this, let's level set a little sure. on the yeah. chemistry of this because I you're 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 into the seventh inning and we just got to the ballpark. Sorry, so, that's good. Um, how does a typical three D
1: printer work? So there are, I mean, now there's I think seven or eight different classifications of of 3D printers, but essentially what a 3D printer does is that it takes material and it builds it into a shape without the use of a mold. So what's important there is that you can say you don't have to do all this pre-planning for a mold and before you make a part. You know, that whole process can take anywhere from three months to a year. Instead, you say, here's the shape I want, and then you print it.
0: So if we're considering this like 10 years ago, if I wanted to make my own chess set, I would have to create a mold for all the chess pieces and then ostensibly fill it up with plastic and then pop them out of the mold and then I'd have my chess pieces. Exactly. 3D printing then allows me to do that though, but without the mold. Exactly. Got it.
1: Exactly. And, and,
0: and what's the material that, that all that gets printed on?
1: Um, so our materials are no, no, no. fairly it's the, it's oh.
0: traditional 3D printing to start.
1: And traditional 3D printing, it either is a, a filament, so it's a piece of plastic that's melted. So that so you need to be able to spool the plastic and make it's almost like a sewing machine, like you feed okay. in a spool of plastic. Other methods, it's a, um, a a liquid resin where it turns into solid wherever light light hits it. So you're limited by where can the light get to. Other systems, it's like a powder that gets fused in very specific locations. So yeah. that those are the but different types. the, the
0: before you. The entirety of 3D printing was, if I if I understand this correctly, was that you can make anything you want. However, you are making rigid objects, stuff
1: that... For the most you know, part.
0: Like a, a chess pawn. Yes. That it might have different sculptural features, but it would be one hard piece of plastic. So you're taking the rolls of plastic and making them into a different roll of plastic
1: exactly
0: here's where it gets fun now because of you how has that changed
1: so now you know that plastic that you that you can you can form that plastic piece can be a rubbery material so and these are pieces that are everywhere so an example is you know if you look under the hood of your car or in your car, you have a lot of pieces that need to be able to move with the motion, but then you know come back that they need to stretch and move and and you know like a CB joint or something, and that's what we're able to print. And the important thing about how our printing is different, and maybe this is what you were getting at, how our printing is different is that instead of bringing a spool of plastic, we actually take materials that are reacting while the printing is happening and so that allows so we, we're controlling a chemical reaction
0: your explanation was a lot more scientific and a lot more thoughtful than mine in, the, in <laughs> my head the the difference between what you can make and what a traditional 3d printer can make is your stuff is bendy
1: yes it is bendy which is, bendy.
0: is you know speaking to an mit doctoral scientist bendy of course is a technical term.
1: It's bendy. I would also add, it's stretchy.
0: B- bendy and stretchy, excellent. <laughs> so, love it. So, what have you made with your materials?
1: Oh gosh, we made all kinds of stuff.
0: Fun things, and some of them are a little rated R. But we let's, actually let's, haven't
1: we haven't made the rated R ones. Those were just things that you and I tossed around trickily. But okay. The, uh, yeah, we're in the market today in hearing aids, and we designed a really special material for hearing aids that softens at body temperature. So you want, for your hearing aid, for the number one reason why people don't wear their hearing aids is because they're uncomfortable. Right. And so we made a more comfortable hearing aid. We partnered with another 3D printing company to make that work, and that's only available in Europe today. So you can't, um, can't find it here, unfortunately. We're working on fixing that. The other place that people get really excited about is by the end of this year, our material will be replacing underwires in bras. What?: I know. I know. It's fantastic.:
0: Well, uh, so. for a, uh, you're doing the Lord's work, and I thank you on of <laughs> Just a, a number a, a number of people. but you've made your own, your own flip-flops.
1: Yes. I've made my own flip-flops. We are also we also have parts riding on trains. So we have a number of parts where, you know, if you think about trains, you know, there it's not like cars where there's a million cars traveling on I-94 every day. Trains, you know, it's something where it's actually really hard to get the parts for, for trains because it's the smaller fleet. So we have parts on trains, parts on buses. You know, sometimes they're just holding cables. Sometimes it's like something that a rod needs to move through or something like that. But, um, but yeah, a lot of parts on trains and buses yeah. are also things that we've made. What are, I, you know,
0: what are some of the zaniest things that you've made.
1: Zaniest. Well, um,
0: there's a great commercial application, and I want to get into that too, but I want to start with the fun stuff.
1: The fun stuff? I mean, we're working on moon shoes. Really? Yeah. Yeah, because everyone everyone wants a personalized pair of moon shoes, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely.
0: We're, wow, I, I definitely <laughs> want to sign up for that. <laughs> so you've created this and you've figured out a way to literally disrupt the, the world and that now these parts don't have to be molded, they don't have to be mass manufactured, they can be done on an individual time. So... How do you turn that into deciding, I'm going to start my own business and work exclusively on this? Because you've got an extensive resume working with some of the biggest companies in the world.
1: So that's, that's a good question. Some of it is personal taste, and other parts are, are just knowing the best way to get things done. So I, you know, I worked many years at Dow. Dow was a great company, and I worked in a lot of new product development but one of the things that um that i found dissatisfying about work as as a technology developer in a large company is that when a company's got established revenue yeah they need new innovations but do they really like at the end of the day they're they're going to keep making making products and and they really don't want to bring out a new product unless their customers force them to, or unless their, their life depends on it. And for too many companies, their life really doesn't depend on it. And when I moved to Segetas, which was a startup, what was fantastic about it was that the, the life of the company depended on innovation. And as an as an innovative person myself, that's it's just very satisfying to work in a place where your work makes a difference. But what was what i found in in that company was that really sigedus was ahead of its time because what it was all about was sustainable materials and we you know we really struggled to find customers who would pay for the sustainability and when i started chromatic what i was looking for was a market where they really needed materials innovation because i you know i love to do work that matters that's how i make my life matter you know, it's not just through my kids. It's through making sure that that what I'm working on day in day out is is going to leave a mark, and and uh, or else, or else I'm wasting my time. And you know, my kids joke that I've been quoted as saying, "Work is life." You know, you work so much at your at your at your job, like if you if you just say my life you know just forget about that 8 hours a day i spent at my job you know here's what my life is then then that's kind of sad so yeah. i like being where i like being where my work matters and so that drew me to 3d printing because it it was obvious to me that 3d printing was starting to take off but the materials were were still lacking and i knew i knew how to do the material side and then i asked myself, okay, so do I want to join a 3D printing company and spend a lot of time convincing them that, you know, to follow my ideas or do I want to start my own? And, you know, I kind of surveyed the the nature of a number of 3D printing companies and decided, you know what, I'll start my own. And because of my experience at, at Segedis, I knew a little bit about what that meant. I knew it meant how to deal with legal, how to deal with, you know, building a team and, and so that's what I did. Because It's been, your, it's been
0: your great. Your background is primarily in chemistry. And when you start a company, you have this idea and this notion of the passion that you're in and this game-changing thing you want to do. But how much time in a week do you really get to be spending in a lab? Because you're running the show.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I have not – I probably have not been active in a lab for, for 20 years now. So it's um, – it's been much more around leadership and pulling the right team together. I mean, it doesn't, you know, I'd be lying if I said I don't get involved in the chemistry. I do get involved in the chemistry, but usually it's contributing an idea or making sure that we're taking care of bottlenecks or anticipating what needs to come. So I would say that, you know, even even my PhD was mostly computer simulations. So it was uh, my mom... Finds it shocking that I got a PhD without having to do any lab work, but it's true. It's my my computer is my lab.
0: So. Wow! Well, that sounds, <laughs> that sounds like a mother. Uh, you know, hey mom, I got a PhD. Well, did you though?
1: Exactly. Um, <laughs> exactly.
0: So so you start. You, you decided you go your own way, and you've been mm-hmm. blessed to receive a number of rounds of funding from a number of different sources. I'm curious how that went down because i think the nature of your product if you look at it as a finite thing it's just basically goo it's a it's a 55 gallon drum of goo but you can then make anything with it so mm-hmm. how did funding go how how did you approach getting funded and and was that a difficult process
1: it's it's always difficult. It's always difficult. Um, yeah. And it's always a blessing. You know, it's I always look at an investment as an act of trust. They are trusting you to spend their money in a way that will lead to more money. And so every the reason why any given investor invests can come from a variety of different reasons. You know, one of the things that happened, with my last round of funding, you know, I kind of pulled the board together, and you know, as part of setting the strategy, I went around and asked everyone, you know, why did you choose to invest in Chromatic? And what was what was mind blowing was like literally everyone went around the room and said, because of you. And yeah. it's like, whoa, whoa, that's that's fantastic, but you know, also a little weighty. So how do you convince people to to invest? It's because you say, here's where I want to go. Here's what I see that in the world that needs fixing. And here's why I think I can do it. And here's why I've got the team of people who can do it. And it's as simple as that. Where, you know, and some people, they, they hear the story and literally, you know, our story is from bras to tires. And some people look at that and say... That's just way too big. Forget it. You know, <laughs> I, and they're they're not the right and they're not the right investor. And others right, go. Part, oh,
0: that, part, that. part of that is I, I think because of my experience in the out- entrepreneurial community, I think well a lot of times what companies fail on is saying that oh my th- my thing my special thing my MacGuffin anybody could use it, and right? you're literally the only person I've ever met who that's actually true.
1: Well, and and that's where you you convince them by saying, "Here's the customers I'm lining up and here's here's why I think that's possible. And you know, one of the ways that um, you know you you joked when we when we got started about um the graduate. I can't remember if this is the intro or before when we were yeah, getting ready. But um one of my my pitches very early on, I actually brought up a picture of Dustin Hoffman, you know with the the famous the pla- you know plastics, you know yeah, it's the way plastic. to go. Yeah. And what I did in that pitch was I said, well, I listened to his advice <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> and, and I know all about plastics. I've spent 25 years in it. I know how everything is made and and you know it's been, Fantastic from my Dow experience that you get to see where everything goes. And literally, you know, where I lived, sometimes I'd have to wait for the trains to go by when I lived in Texas, the trains to go by to, to, um, on my way to work. And, you know, I think I, I invited my sister to visit me once at my work in Dow and she, I said, so what do you think? And I'm thinking that she's like, oh, this is really cool stuff. Cora, you know, I'm also wanting to be a chemist, you know, blah, blah, blah. And she's like, now I know where all the trains go. <laughs> and so, but literally I would watch the trains go by and I was like, up oh, there, are the two rail cars headed off to make refrigerators. And there are the 15 rail cars headed off to make grocery bags. And you know, you could basically, I mean, it's boring sitting and waiting for a train, but you could basically say, I know where those are all going. And so you, you just learn, here's where all the materials go and where there's big opportunity. You get a a, kind of a, uh, it's sort of like sitting at the, um, sitting at the top of a theater where you can kind of see where all raw materials go. And so I think that's why I was able to get Buy-in is that I'm able to say, "Hey, this application that you as an as an individual consumer might not understand, I know about. You know why I'm going to go for this and not sneakers, or why I'm going to go for bras and not and not gaskets or whatever the case may be. So that's how you get the buy-in. And you know, we're bringing it back to how do you convince people to to invest? Is that you have to Give them a reason to trust that you have a good intuition of when you've got the right team and where you're going to go with it and what you're going to do with it. The other thing that I think is important from the investor perspective is that I think too often entrepreneurs try to come up with something that will appeal to all investors, and that just doesn't exist. When you find the right investor, it's because you are taking them in a direction that meshes with their view of the world as well, and how they want to make a difference in the world as well. And so i view I view the fundraising um, the fundraising process is really a sales process. And I mean that not in terms of, hey, you've got to get out there and sell, but more from the perspective of you're trying to find you're you're trying to shape a value proposition. Your value proposition is around the value of your company. And find the customers who really resonate with that value proposition. So that's I how think, I. Raise I money. think one of the
0: because because I, I I bought Cora stock long long time ago. I got ground floor stock in in, in Cora and Chromatic. One of the things that I think was a great thing that broke your way was your facility, because I I you told me once what you pay a month for your facility. And we don't have to go into that, but you have an outstanding facility that you got for a song. So how did how did that one little break and, and well, first of all, tell us about the facility, and then secondly, yeah. how did because of that lucky break, how has that affected you positively?
1: Oh, it's been and I have an update, Trigvy, since the last oh. time. But yeah, so the the way the facility worked is that you know, essentially I'm in the same facility that I was at, at Segetis. So there was a, at Segetis, we had this great process chemistry lab. And if, you know, more than $15 million had been put into it. And, you know, it's 15,000 square feet with a fully equipped lab. And, you know Sagedis, essentially had to close and i was part of the group that sold the facility and its capabilities to the next you know the company that picked up the the ball and and ran with it and what i did was i said you know so i've helped you get into this facility and get these assets you know do you mind if i just rent a little counter space you know for you know 1000 bucks a month and and i'll also help you you know, navigate the facility, know what every where everything is, what to do. And you know, for them, that was a good that was a good sweet deal. So what has happened over the course of the the time is that now, just this year, we actually took over the lease. So it's entirely a chromatic facility now. Wow. and um yeah, it's it's great. And so we're, now we have a lot more freedom to to configure it the way we really need. And how um, much
0: square footage do you have?
1: It's all all 15,000 square feet now. It's, yeah. it's all dedicated to... And we have like a printer room that's just one printer after another. And so it's been great. But for a startup, what's super about that is that it meant that I could start a chemistry lab without having to buy all the equipment and without having to buy a lot of time. And so it was just really very efficient. We were able to to learn, like if we had some experiment we wanted to try, we could try it on a piece of equipment, and find out, you know what, we get better results from this one, which was great because it meant we didn't have to invest, you know, $100,000 in that first piece of equipment that didn't really give us the answers we needed. So it was very opportunistic. And, you know, the funny thing is seeing that, we're, you know, we've actually opened a subsidiary in Germany and we're doing exactly the same thing there. So we started out, you know, Bart who leads our German subsidiary first rented some space from his dad, you know, literally. Right. So rented just a little counter, hey dad, can I just put my computer here and and maybe we can set up a printer. And then within a year we essentially had taken over the facility. We left we left his dad one room and then just this year again there was a grocery store that was open, it was vacant. And so, and we're like, oh well, we need a place to assemble some printers, and now, now it's actually our facility in Germany. So we have another another five thousand square feet in Germany now. You've so, uh,
0: German, German grocery store to on top of everything
1: else, basically. <laughs> so, but it's it just comes from being opportunistic as you go and and say, okay, what can I do right now, and not getting obsessed over. What do I need to be in a year if you if you can be cash effective and grow when you need it? It's just awesome.
0: I think what's remarkable about what you just shared is that the idea of winning was relative when you, you got started because, well, number one is you were nice. And so they, uh, they helped you out and then you slowly took over. But number two is, I, I think as a learning point for people who are listening is, you're not going to get everything you want right away. You're not going to take over the entire 15,000 square foot facility right away. But if you can get your foot in the door and then, and and then, and you're nice and you, uh, you show up and you're opportunistic, good things happen.
1: It's true. It's true. I mean, I'd rather be, uh, I'd rather be lucky than smart. Right. So um, (laughs) it's it's a little bit of both. It's a little bit of both. And so, yeah, I think definitely not being too greedy about what it needed to be, you know, just has, has helped us grow and get more than we thought. I mean, but along those lines of being opportunistic, one of the things that I've been just amazed at is just how much people help each other when it comes to starting a business. You know, yes, I would, absolutely. you know, so now there's actually someone who's going to start renting a little, uh, essentially a counter space in in our facility for a thousand bucks a month. And of course I'm open to that. He's looking for a good place to get, he needs to be able to do some lab work. So sure, come on in. And there's a lot of, in the startup community, there's a lot of reaching a handout and helping to pull each other up. And for that reason alone, you should be nice to everybody. <laughs> and, you know, the amazing thing too, is looking at how many people I've been able to reach out to who I haven't seen in 15 years, maybe was someone I worked with at Dow and, you know, I'm able to reach them, reach out to them, call them and, and get some ideas and vice versa. So, you know, some of my first investments came from people who had worked with me 10 years earlier. And so there's, you know, it's one of those things where, at the time that I was in college, and people told me, "Hey, you got to network." You know, engineers always sneer at networking; they they hate networking. They're like, "What do you mean? I have to actually work with people? That's terrible." Yeah. Um, and and so, if I had if I gave myself this advice, you know, I probably wouldn't have listened to it. But the reality is that the people that are in your world they keep coming back.
0: One, way or, can, another,
1: one way or the other, for good or for bad. So you better hope it's for good.
0: <laughs> I, know, I, I, I found in my life that being right and being successful are not always the same thing. And it's I true. think, as you just described, you make a conscious choice. Despite your lengthy academic curriculum uh, of vitae, which <laughs> is school. Shame, most people. You've chosen to be successful, which I, th- I think is really cool. So, why Germany? So,
1: Germany. You know, I I believe in my technology development. You know, I, I I'm not someone who just stays in the lab. Well, we just already covered that. I'm not really in the lab anyway. But I really believe strongly in in the course of technology development that you have to be paying attention to what customers want from you. And you have to be ready to sh- to change what you are offering to meet those customer needs. They, let, that early market feedback, customer feedback is just so critical. And what I found was happening was that I would go to U.S. conferences and mostly pick up German leads. So okay. essentially, I was getting to the point where you know, most of my interested customers were German customers. The other thing that I know, and this was, you know, the group I I led at Dow was a, a an international group. A lot, you know, I think one third of my team was over in Switzerland. And the other thing I was realizing was that for a lot of our German customers, part of our sale. Entailed convincing other German engineers or German technicians or German you know plant operators that our technology would solve their problems. And a lot of those German operators their their path to their job is much more like a Votech kind of job career path. So their English isn't necessarily very good. So it became really clear that to really make progress with a number of our German customers, we had to be doing business in German. And so, what happened was that I had a really good friend here in in the U.S. who was German, who had to go back to Germany for for family and and um, visa reasons. And he's like, Cory can I help you out?" It's like, "heck yeah!" <laughs> so, he consulted for us for about a year and and helped make some progress at some of our customers. And then we decided to start a German subsidiary because even. You know a lot of our a lot of our sales process involves smaller transactions moving to larger transactions, and German companies did not want to bother to do an international wire transfer for a um, small thousand dollar two thousand dollars transaction. So we're in Germany mostly because the customers took us there. If I step back and say, "Well, why Germany? Why is this happening?" you know, While the US lost a lot of manufacturing capability in the last 30 years, Germany really hasn't. Germany has been protecting their their industrial base and they have a lot of specialty manufacturing there. And specialty manufacturing is an especially good business case for 3D printing because 3D printing usually does well when um, there's not necessarily a, a mass production situation and where you need custom machinery and, and things like that. So there's a lot of very good specialty manufacturing capabilities in Germany, and, and they want our products. So that's why I'm in Germany.
0: Which I think is an, an, another great illustrative teaching, teaching point is that, like you said, that you, you went where the customers were. And continually trying to redefine the marketing uh, the market or tinker with your marketing because you have to have it the way you want it and sell to the people that you think you should be selling to that's one choice the other choice is that's being right like we just talked about being successful is okay for some reason we're people in germany love us it's cora and david okay so (laughs) let's go to germany so
1: exactly and the funny thing is that my name is German. So I actually have a lot of right. Germans say, oh, well, you must be German. It's like, well, actually, it's my my husband's name, but that's fine. I'll be German yeah, I, today.
0: I, I that too. <laughs> People start talking to me in Norwegian and like, oh, okay, thank you. Thank
1: you. (laughs) Exactly. Now, the other interesting thing is that we're actually picking up much more traction in the U.S. now. And I think part of it is because of our success in in Germany, because we're able to say to Americans, you know, hey, this is passing the German engineers. So how about we, I bet we can help you too. And there's a lot of credibility from getting the, the stamp of approval in Germany. The other thing that we're finding is that for the very same reasons that you know Germans have been building up their manufacturing in the US now that we're trying to bring a lot of manufacturing back, there are a lot of things that, they, that Americans need to source from Germany and other locations. And we can say, well, you can bring in local manufacturing, make your parts where you need them instead of sourcing them from German suppliers. And you can do that using chromatic technology. So that's, that is sort of our second wave now as it's coming into America.
0: And we've had sort of had some fun talking about flip flops and bras, but it seems like the mo- the most uh, direct commercial application of the product is creation of gaskets. Um, it, yeah, and that's definitely. the easiest thing to do is instead of waiting a week for a gasket, you could you could ostensibly three D print your own.
1: Right. Exactly. And and the stories on gaskets are are amazing. A lot of people say, "Hey, three D printing can't possibly be fast enough." and i like to joke like we're not competing against an injection molding machine we're 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 competing against a boat that's traveling across the atlantic or across the pacific and we can beat that you know for sure so a lot yeah. of our customers they have like 8 week 12 week wait times for their parts and we're able to to say you could print it here and have it in 2 days that's easy. i mean
0: what the use case is that you told me back in the day is if you're in an isolated area and you only get a certain amount of supplies dropped every week, but then you're also dealing with like an Army Humvee that's been manufactured by eight different people, your ability to get parts is almost non-existent. But this gives you an opportunity to, to literally, in an isolated area, make what you need when you need it.
1: Right. And what we're finding more and more is that that isolated area could just as well be Minneapolis. Yes, Yes, you know the Siberian desert
0: continuing to be tremendously goofy.
1: Exactly. I mean, the it was wild to see what happened with the pandemic with supply chain because when I started Chromatic, it was it was 2016 2017 before all the supply chain mayhem. And what's interesting, and I've had a couple of investors point this out, like Corey, you knew about this. Is that you know what I could tell from from you know, being in a raw material supplier is all of the—I call it—molecular tourism that that materials go through. I mean, your your plastic before it gets to you probably traveled the world. It's insane. It's totally stupid. That was why I had conviction around 3D printing, and why when I saw what 3D printing could do, why I was like, "Holy cow! This can really solve this problem that I've seen ever since I started." you know, in the the materials industry. And the only reason why it's kept going is because we've been able to do it so cheaply, because gas is cheap. But what we learned with the pandemic is like if you start, you know, it's it's sort of a, a stack of cards. And if you take the card out at the bottom, the whole building collapses and and we're surprisingly unprepared for that situation.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the things and I and I and I sort of may mention of this earlier is you sort of have in the industrial application of Legos, and is, is that it, if you look at what you're offering and selling, it's unless you're a chemist, it's just it's it's ectoplasm. But <laughs> what you can do with it, the possibilities are endless, much like Legos. So, how do you inspire customers to create?
1: It's really a challenge, honestly. It's, um, you know, what we've been working on is anticipating some of their application requirements and application needs so that we can say, hey, here's an example of exactly what you can do. We've been working on demos that can help help people understand. So an example of of the demos is like in 3D printing, people just start by assuming your materials are fragile. And so we had to start by saying, you know, I think one of my first demos, I'd say, you know, are you stronger than an elastomer and call call people up to the front of the, the room and get them to kind of like, please try to break this. Because mostly when people hand you a 3D printed part, people treat it like it's fragile. Yeah. And we shouldn't, you know, you, if, if your part is really good for manufacturing, you shouldn't treat it that way. You should treat it like the stuff you throw in your backpack. Right. And so we've really been working on demos that can help make that happen. And it's very interesting to see how much you can try to describe an opportunity, but then you just have to you just have to make it. So the bra opportunity is an interesting one because really what we're doing is saving a lot of assembly steps because yeah. if you think about the underwire, they have to make the wire, then they kind of have to seam it in and encase it. And what we're able to do instead is just print directly on fabric. And our material is sort of part glue, part structured, um, wow. structured part. so um, and i'm I'm realizing this is a podcast, so I'm like so tempted to just show you this part right oh, here. It's yeah. a demo. It's,
0: it's really neat. It looks like a mouse pad, but uh, also a mattress, I guess. I don't know. what is that?
1: Oh, what I just showed. So what this is, is it's just a piece of t-shirt material that we printed a structure on it. And so, it. and we can show that the structure that we've printed just moves with the t-shirt. But it's through demos like that, that we can help inspire people to to change their designs to something that's printable. You know, this other part that I have sitting here, it's, um, I'm Also, this this video, but maybe I'll send you photos you can show on the with the podcast. So, you know, this is an example part where we take something that's a simple bellow. You know, so if you think about a bellow, sort of like the bellow on a an accordion, that's this sort of important shape for buffering vibrations and things like that. And so, what we're able to do is that we can print hard material, transition to a soft material, and go back to a hard material. And what's interesting about that is that if you think about almost every bellow you work with, you might have to have like a steel clamp to, you know, bolt it down to whatever you're trying to connect it to. But if you have like a hard going to soft and then hard again, then kind of that fixture becomes a lot easier and you can make it so it's only moving where you want it to move that's an example where we just have to show we just have to come up with the the concepts and and share it with people because trying to inspire the creativity process in your customers is not easy it's not easy so we have to inspire we have to have examples we have to guess what's important to them in their in their applications you know i have another customer where um you know we had been talking to them about how we had this chemistry capability we could make the make the product they had with some of the materials that are that they needed to use and they didn't they didn't really get it until we said okay we know that you have a problem where that part you've been printing shatters when you put set it on a on a shelf we can fix that you know and and we just really had to walk in their shoes a little ways and say that we can fix it, and here's how we're going to fix it. And they, they're like, really, you know. And even though we have been telling them, hey, ask, them, tell us what you, what we could do for you. Finally, we said, okay, we're going to tell you what we can do for you, and we'll get you there. And so you really need to walk in their shoes, ways, and you know, do these examples walk around in flip-flops at a conference you know, for people to really understand that, no, this is really different. And and here's some examples of what that can mean for you.
0: I have two final questions. So how long does it take to 3D print a flip-flop? Because I think everybody understands what, what a flip-flop is compared to a, a, a bellow. Yeah. How long does it take um, to 3D print a flip-flop? Like I'm, you know, I was thirteen shoe. So yeah, yeah,
1: we can. You know, we haven't tried recently. I think I, I 3D printed that flip flop maybe four years ago. With our current tech, I think we could probably 3D print a flip flop in about two hours. Right. The main the thing that we've been showing from a printing speed perspective is that our printers are low enough cost. That if you were to look at the cost of the machine for making a, a million flip-flops, that machine costs a million dollars yeah. at least. And we can set up, you know, 50 printers for that cost or more. Yeah. You know, and so the question's not how long does it take for a single printer to print that part, but rather how many flip-flops can 50 printers churn out? And that's that's how we're trying to change the equation. I think it's one of the things that's been a struggle in the industry is that because most of the 3D printing industry is focused on selling machines, um, they put a lot of features into the machines that make those machines expensive. And then the the speed of the machine matters. But if you keep your machine fairly stripped down. And our approach right now, we probably last time we spoke, Trigby, we were not selling machines. We sell machines today. Yeah. And essentially what we do is we have this base skeleton and then we add features based on what we know a customer needs. And so they're only getting the features they really need, and we're able to keep the cost of the printer fairly low. And if you if you think about this this question of how long does it take to make a flip-flop, if if you're a flip-flop company, And you're thinking, oh, right now I make all my flip-flops in China, but all my customers are in Latin America and Florida and and Spain or something like that. You can instead take that $1 million machine and split it up three ways with 15 printers in in every location that you need, and you're you're no longer putting flip-flops on a boat.
0: I want to sort of end by reminding of the person that I talked about in the beginning when back at that conference five or six or seven, okay, many years ago. Now, God, we're getting old. It's just so fascinating to think of all those people with all of their charts and graphs. And the one person from that who's so wildly successful is the one who had the game-changing thing and didn't need to make a big deal out of it. My favorite Simpsons character is a character called Disco Stew. Because it was it, the, the joke of it was that home, it was a yard sale episode, and Homer was he tried to make a, a jean jacket, a bejeweled jean jacket that said "Disco Stu, Stud," but he ran out of room, and so the joke was is he was selling that jacket, and this guy in a disco outfit walks up, and somebody says, "Well, Stu, you should get that," and the answer was, "No, man, Disco stew doesn't advertise." <laughs> That's, That's kind of how I think about you is that, you know, if you're, if you're that level of awesome, it will come out eventually. There's no need to, to, to flaunt but it. A little,
1: a little bit of flash is not a bad thing, but I, I think the other, you know, if I, if I look at the success I've had in fundraising, you know, coming back, you know, people are investing in, in me. I think part of the appeal has been that I come across as a genuine person and i definitely could use more improvement on marketing and flash cuz i think that that's uh you know i i, sh- I shouldn't i sh- you know if you think about that room full of people it wouldn't be a bad thing for people to to know what i was doing and what we're up to earlier rather than later but, yeah, but um, I, I, so i take I think, that as room for improvement but the authenticity is important but and, I think, and i think that's
0: yeah, th- I, I think you're wrong honestly because as you said all those people around there they bought into you and then they bought in the idea and that's just more, more important than it and than, than anything. So, all right. So th- uh, Cora, how can people find you online if they want to learn more about your product and learn more about chromatic 3d materials?
1: So our website, www.c3dm.com. Also, we have a very active LinkedIn presence. So if you like or follow chromatic 3d materials on LinkedIn, you'll get a lot of information about us. Also, You know, feel free to connect with me personally on LinkedIn and, you know, I'm happy to share contact information or what have you, but um, happy to help future entrepreneurs and, and, uh, or people who just want to learn more.
0: Yeah. I think one of the things that's just most disappointing about you is, as we've gotten older together, is that your kids aren't at home. So your husband is not doing dag jokes on the lunch bags.
1: I know. I know. That's that's on
0: Facebook. If 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 you, if you, if you search on Facebook for dag jokes on a bag, you'll get a very, Sweet man who thinks he's funny. So, All right. So uh, thank you, Cora, Wal- Walter White's good cousin Glenda, uh, Cora Liebig. Thanks for joining awesome. us
1: today. Very good. Thanks, Trippy.